Welcome to Places, everyone. I'm Lonnie Firestone. This episode is part of a series called Create Through This. It's about how arts makers are processing this time of profound pain and change. The coronavirus shifted our lives profoundly, sending us into our own separate spaces. Then the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and Breonna Taylor led us outside again to protest the systemic racism against Black people and other people of color. On this podcast, I'm always interested in themes. It's never just, so how'd you get started? I love to probe deeper topics with my guests, to engage with the art they're making, to learn from their insights, and to offer listeners a new perspective. In the past week, I realized how much I didn't know about so many artists I love and admire, specifically how Black theater artists have felt diminished, manipulated, overlooked, and taken for granted. Certainly, I knew how overwhelmingly white Broadway productions are, and how often projects by Black writers are not deemed commercially viable. I knew how rarely Black artists rise to the position of executive producer or artistic director at theater companies, and how little these companies reach out to Black theaters and festivals. I knew that publications were making a major misstep when all of their theater critics were white. But I thought that there were many rewarding experiences for Black artists, that many had received productions of their work that felt meaningful, beautiful, and well-received. I didn't realize how often those productions still compromise Black artists in some way. And I apologize for that failure to see it. In the past week, Black playwrights, actors, stage managers, and other artists revealed the experiences they had resisted sharing publicly for fear they wouldn't work again. After Griffin Matthews created a video that detailed his experiences with bigotry in the theater, I called my friend Kelly Gerard to talk about it. Kelly is a playwright and the founder of the Fire This Time Festival. We met in grad school as MFA students at Columbia School of the Arts. We've always had a deep friendship in which topics are open for in-depth discussion, from religion to art to politics to racism. I interviewed Kelly for a previous episode of Places Everyone, in which we focused on the fire this time. I hope you'll check that one out. I asked Kelly if she would do another episode to talk about how theater companies, which seem to delight in a diversity of stories, managed to cause so much pain, disappointment, and heartache to Black artists. The theater industry can do so much better, and audiences can as well. I'm grateful to Kelly for her thoughts, and I thank you for listening. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Lonnie. I'm so glad to have you here, and I'm so glad to talk to you tonight. So thank you so much for joining me. Oh, always, always a pleasure to talk to you, Lonnie. I think that we're in a moment of rupture in this country, and this feels like a bigger movement than so many previous ones, at least in my memory or in my life. Um, and I think that the pandemic, as much as it complicates things, has also propelled it forward. 
because people are feeling pent up. And if they've been furloughed or laid off from work, they have time to mobilize. And um, it just feels like a distinct combination of events that is making this so um, uh, momentous right now. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so of course I want to talk to you specifically about theater and I think what is so interesting is that the center of these protests is the fight against police departments and governments that are systematically hurting African-Americans. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, just as in the same week, we had an incident of a horrific murder and a light scenario that went very problematic there's this other rupture happening right now in an industry, the arts, that purports to care deeply about equality and about the image of embracing all humanity and the the spirit of enlightenment. And just like those two events in that week, there are these two kinds of ruptures happening right now that I am so interested to hear your thoughts about. So I want to know, do you think that this time is right for this moment in theater because theaters are closed? I think um, this time is right because there's a greater fear of what could be lost. I know that we spoke about, like, you know, um, Griffin Matthews' statement on Facebook uh, and how that went viral. And then that kind of spurred a lot of people to start speaking their own truths. We, and, you know, in the industry, have been forced to compromise our feelings to try to get get closer to anything that feels like progress or get closer to the the thing that is our dream. And in order to do that, you know, you just, uh, you, you, you fear that if you say something, that if you are considered difficult, that you're going to lose uh, your opportunities, you're going to lose your dreams. And I think that we all watched uh, a Black man die for eight minutes and um and i and i think that when the statements for the theaters did finally start to come out it was just like you know we've been worried about you know being polite so that we can get closer to our dream and it's so much it's so much more urgent than that because if you can watch a black man be murdered and not immediately feel that you need to make a statement that is um, reaching out to the people of color that you br- that you bring into your institution that you claim to care about. It's um. It's uh. It's just it's it's so much more urgent than the work. Uh, it's a reckoning that there's not really a care for your life or is there in their mind is there care for your life you know forget about the work is it your life does that matter to you 
I just went on a tangent. Not at all. I think I think the interesting thing about this is that the arts to the the non the person who's not in the arts world, this might seem like a tangent. Like there's there are protests right now about the police force in multiple cities across America. The arts seem so tangential to this central thing. And I think to people who are in the industry and who care deeply about it, the idea is that it is not tangential because people respond to the world when they create work, Mm -hmm. writers and artists and uh, just creative arts makers look at, see what is happening around them. And then they create art from that. Larry Kramer just died Mm -hmm. so recently. And so much of the power of his art was the anger he was feeling about the AIDS crisis not being treated as as urgent by the government and the medical industry. And he wrote his plays out of that fury. So artists turn to storytelling. And when Mm -hmm. the industry that is meant to nurture that storytelling also feels sabotaging. Then you say, how do I even create the story about the world I'm experiencing? Yeah. So I don't think it's tangential. I, I think you're exactly right on. What I want to hear your thoughts on is how a field that is so much about celebrating the multiple stories of humanity can have this enormous blind spot. Power and influence. (laughs) I I remember being at the TCG conference when it was held in St. Louis, Missouri. And um, I went um, as a representative of the Sheen Center and um, the executive director couldn't go. So I went to the lunch for artistic directors and the um uh title of the conference was equity inclusion diversity and everything was you know about being inclusive and um i think you could have filled one table in that room with every artistic director that was of color Mm. and it was like just this total lack of awareness and i remember you know sitting next to Teresa iring who is the um uh, executive director, TCD. I, I believe that's her correct title. Correct me if I'm wrong. We were kind of like talking about like, oh, what can we do to make things, you know, better and equity, inclusion, diversity. And I said, look at your table of newly appointed artistic directors. They were all white, and they're sitting there, patting themselves on the back for equity, inclusion, diversity. There is just a lack of understanding that many times being an ally means being willing willing to step aside. Who is willing to cede power? Who is willing to say, I no longer want to be the person that lets everybody else in and, and gets to choose who gets to come in? 
Um, I, I have said over and over again that if theaters really meant what they said about equity, diversity, inclusion, they wouldn't wait for a grant that allows them to hire an intern of color or a new staff member of color. They would prioritize it in their budgets, but they don't. Why is that? Because nobody is willing to give up their seat and they're not willing to share it. And that's what it comes down to. You know, we've, we've, we've seen a couple of pre-George Floyd, when we were just in a COVID world, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, in the good old days, uh, you know, in the COVID world, there were some appointments that we were all really excited about. The, the Lark's executive director has appointed a um, uh, Black female to the, the role of executive director. Um, Tamala Woodard um, just took a, a position, and, and because it's late and I'm exhausted and I cannot put everything together, you know, so she, she just took a position that's, that's very significant. Those are the types of things that should have been happening. And, uh, and, and, and they just weren't, when opportunities have come up, and I know that you and I have differing opinions on um, Jesse Green and his appointment to the New York Times, mm -hmm. when there was an opportunity to put someone in a position that could have changed the way that people in the arts see the world, they did not take the opportunity. What does that tell you? It tells you everything that you need to know about where their priorities lie. And you know, and it's and and it's not as if those of us who've been in here, like all of a sudden today, we're just like, oh, wow, these theaters are really hollow. It's it's um it's it's the the level of um betrayal. Like a a man just had his neck kneeled on for eight minutes called out to his mother and someone had to tell you to prepare a statement for us many of us are from that betrayal and if there were a pandemic or not i don't know that our response wouldn't have been different because you know, I don't, I don't know how anybody sees that, and anybody who claims to care about a a community does not respond immediately. Your statement should have included, "Here's all the things we did wrong or doing wrong, and here's our five-year strategic plan on how we're going to fix it." That's what a statement should have looked like if it if it meant something. Mm -hmm. I did notice many of them had various pledges to the future. It seemed like that became a sort of blueprint. I received many of them, I'm sure you do too. Did those statements for the future, those pledges, did those feel equally hollow to you? I mean, I don't even know that I got to the pledges, to be totally honest with you. Because like, if the first sentence wasn't, <laughs> I mean, I just, I, I, I feel like I just read a lot of things that just did not start off on the, on the right foot. And we've seen those pledges before, right? You know, we saw everybody at the conference on equity, diversity, and inclusion, and, you know, and what they were going to do. And they left that conference. And, you know, I personally, 
after that conference probably experienced the the most painful dehumanizing thing I ever experienced in the theater shortly after that, in which I had to sit at a table with people with a printout of workplace discrimination laws and, and let them know that I knew what they were doing wrong in order for them to fix it. So it's like it's all um, triggering right now. And um, and I and I feel like I could see, you know, some uh, institutions saying, oh, well, you know, this is why we didn't want to say anything because we didn't know if we were going to say the right thing. And, you know, if we're going to, you know, actually, you know, maybe inadvertently um, piss people off or actually, you know, it's like. If there was a genuine care this entire time, you would know what to say right now. Right. Yeah. I remember um, when I was reading the book Americana, there was a statement that I have thought about so often since then that people have different ideas of what diverse looks like. And since reading that, it was a profound mental shift for me where she said that if a white person is in a room filled with people and there are 10 African-American people there, the white person might think, oh, this is a diverse space or this is a space with people of color or yeah, we heard from a lot of black people today or something like that. And to the people of color in the room, it doesn't quite look diverse because they're looking at the sea of white people. Mm -hmm. I think there is a a just stubborn mental handicap to be able to look at the lack of diversity as indeed being a lack of diversity. It is not excusable. I'm just noticing the handicap. And I think it takes a true shift of conscience. I'm hoping that this moment does it because I, I can say that when I read that line in the novel, it was a light switch that I've never gone back on. It's just something I, I have thought about so much since reading that. And I'm just wondering if there's that kind of blockage still happening where when people talk about the EDI, to have that ability to recognize what it actually looks like or if it's just a tiny fraction that feels like something larger. Well, you know, look, the the problem is, is that, you know, people say EDI and or they jump on these initiatives and there is no real work that's been put in to actually contextualize that. EDI is not something that just, oh, hey, today is, yesterday was Monday, today is Tuesday. We're going to do some EDI and here's, and here's how we do it, you know, and, and it doesn't work that way. It, it goes so much deeper than that. And the only way that I can really sum it up so that I'm like, not just, you know, going on another tangent is that I made a, a, a Facebook post a few days ago and in, in which I was basically saying, you know, to young protesters who have, it's their first time being out in the streets. If you don't know who Emmett Till was and you're out in the streets for George Floyd, you need 
to go home and Google <laughs> or do some homework. Um, you cannot really, really, really grasp or really, really, really put yourself into the work if you're not willing to go all the way back and start with re-education. Those of us who, who grew up in this country, you know, Black of color, you know, we know American history and then we know our history. And there is no such thing as Black history. It's American history. If any of the artistic directors had said to themselves, oh, I am actually, or, or these staff members, I am, I am so committed that I'm going to go back to re-education so that you can contextualize why you're doing the EDI. Because you, because you know what? It's like when you, when you, when you don't have to, when, 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 the, when the education isn't convenient anymore because you got everything that you wanted, you're not going to fight. You're not going to fight anymore. You know, I, w- I was having this conversation with um, my, you know, the um, Keith Beauchamp and Michael Riley, who are the uh, co-writers of the Emmett Till screenplay. Um, you know, we just we have a um, text thread and we were just like, you know, going off about everything. And I said, these protests, you know, should have happened after Emmett Till. You know, white people are joining in on this now because now that unemployment's about to run out and they have no jobs to return to and no real leadership to give them any kind of certainty on, on, on their survival. Now they know what it's like to be black. So that's why they've joined this. And, you know, Keith corrected me and said, Kelly, these, there, there were these kinds of protests after Emmett Till. They just didn't last, mm. you know, white people fell off after a certain point. And that's because, you know, once you become middle-class, <laughs> once you have a house in the suburbs, and your kids go to a good school and you got a car, what what place does that education have anymore? You don't want to lose the stuff that you got, but you're it's it's cool to see everybody, you know, as long as you're not losing losing it. And and that's the problem with not being educated to contextualize the moment. So even if these theaters say right now, oh, we're committed to this, 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 what's gonna happen? whenever you know things 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 go back to normal which there is not going to be a normal like so 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 that's why you can have a statement like the theaters coming out now in terms of george floyd when we had trayvon martin and we had you know and and we had everybody in in between because nobody actually did the work i was um so I'm on the chapter in um, Ibram X. Kendi's book about uh, white spaces. Uh, each chapter in his uh, book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, is about um, a different kind of way or space that it uh, can be manifested uh, negatively or, or if you actively work against it positively. And he goes into some detail about Brown versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court case from 1954. And what he he cites is that uh, Justice Earl Warren thought that white schools had no negative impact by being one race, by being entirely white. The reason for the decision was so that 
Black students could have the opportunity to get a better education. So it, that's a very mixed bag because there's a degree of civil rights mentality and a degree of empathy for Black children and Black students deserving the right to a good education. But there's a tremendous short-sightedness. And I know this is more than a half a century ago, but there's a, a real uh, failure, I think, to see the all-white space as being completely fine. And I mm-hmm. think that's what we have so much in theater when you have a Broadway season or until pretty recently a nonprofit season that is just so homogenous. And then there was a bit of a light switch where they said, okay, if we have an all white season, people will rightly call us out. And there has been actually progress on that. But I think there was this baseline assumption, sort of like the Supreme Court case, that bringing in the Black writers, this is good for the Black writers, mm-hmm. as opposed to the whole industry needs this. And that's what is taking so long. I think this idea that if a Broadway season doesn't have these amazing writers to be part of it, and everything comes from the writing and theater, that it's perfectly fine. It's a, it's a rich season because you have some classic white playwrights and some new white playwrights that nothing is lost. Do you know what I mean? Like there's this two-sided part to it. It can't just be, let's try to be inclusive for the Black writers. It seems like that's where the, where white producers and white nonprofits are, are coming up short. Yeah, yeah, so, if I could, so when you said something that popped up in my head that like I kind of flagged it, but the idea that our work isn't necessarily seen as something that is a sure bet for them as much as it is a gift to us. Is that, is that kind of what you were, you were saying? I think so. And that the idea that theaters do have in their mission a sense of inclusivity, whether or not that's fully manifested. I think they they want to think it. I think I think most people who have liberal values or or, or proclaim to want to have a spirit of embracing humanity. It, but there's also this like stubborn mentality there. That's like, we should bring in the Black playwrights, or we should have a season that looks better in our program. Right. I mean, I, I mean, I totally agree with the, with that sentiment that it's like, it's, it's, there's, it, there's always something more to it than it just coming down to the work for us. You know, because I have many times said to myself, I'm just like, so like, why doesn't this theater have, you know, like what, like, you know, if you're just evaluating the work on the work, 
then like why doesn't a, a a traditionally like white theater institution have an all black season? Like if I'm if a bunch of plays are being put in front of me and I'm reading the ones that I'm like excited about, like what the institutions are doing are putting think people in piles. But it's what it sounds like, you know, so you know, submit to this initiative or, you know, whatever. Or, oh, I have a you know, a, a great this playwright that, you know, would be really great for your season. And, 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 you know, and I'm saying this from like the perspective of being at a programming table and just being like, what, so like, why are we just like, so why does this thing have to fit into Black History Month? Like, it, it, it makes no sense. Like, like constantly calling people out on like, it doesn't, does this make sense to you that you've got this kind of audience, but you've got this kind of programming and this, and your mission is to do X, Y, and Z. So why are we, why are we compartmentalizing? Like if it's, if it's, if it's about the work and it's not about, you know, always seeing it as something else, it's never made sense to me from a programming perspective. Do you think that if a theater did an all-Black season, do you think people would say they were projecting or trying too hard? I'm just curious about the alternate possible reaction. Um, yes, they would. And, it's, and it would probably be because um, uh, there has been nothing organic about the effort previously. Hmm. You know, I mean, I could, I could tell you right now, I mean, I've been working at a theater, you know, uh, Frigid NYC, you know, and I've been working with Eris Ziv for my entire career. And before the word ally was being thrown around and before the word equity, diversity, inclusion were being thrown around, Eris was always just doing that, like organically. So if, if Eris just, just like naturally did, had an all black season, you know, like it wouldn't feel disingenuous to me because I've been in that space for 12 years and I've never felt discomfort. Like here's the thing, like, you know, sincerity can't be faked. When you walk into a theater or an institution, you feel where people's values are. You feel it. And I, I can tell you, I've worked at institutions like where I was the only black person on the staff. And one of our biggest problems with getting people of artists through the doors was that they would come in and they knew from the front desk that something was wrong. I would literally have them say to me, I don't feel welcome. This doesn't feel right. You know, something is just off about the space. Hmm. What would you say to them? I would say you're right. <laughs> you're right to feel that way. And I, and, and, and I would say, you know, I'm here. Though, like I'm here, I'm gonna take care of you. Nothing's gonna happen to you. You know, I would have to give people pep talks before they came in and say, I got you. I'm at the table with you. I'm not gonna let them say anything or do anything. Um did it didn't always work because you know, you still have people who think that they know better who think it's okay to walk into a room full of black people and the first thing that comes out of your mouth is, I could tell you that nobody here has a racist bone in their bodies. <laughs> and you want, and, and so it comes down to sincerity. You know, you don't, 
you 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 don't go from making a statement that's that's meant to be in solidarity and really pisses people off to planning an all black season. Mm-hmm. You know what 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 you do is that the the commitment is for the it's for for the foreseeable future, right? So that when you do have that all black season twelve years down the road, nobody's going to give you the side eye about it because for twelve years you've been doing what you needed to do to make that space feel sincere. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the the first step on the way to the 12 years? I don't, I, I don't know. It is, it's just, I, I don't know. Because like, how, like, how do I say, you know, you all maybe need to, to, to shut down for a year? and dedicate yourselves to some intense education and training and don't do anything for a year. Well, you this know? might be the year for that. Um, well, yeah, you would think that. And yet um, they're putting out statements like this. You know, they've been sitting at home for two months like the rest of us. So what? Have, so clearly what have they been thinking about? And I'm not, and let me let me be clear that I am not going to fault anybody for thinking about their survival. <laughs> See, like, here's the freaking funny thing about this. They're scrambling for their survival, and we are literally, literally scrambling for ours. But their survival is, how do I, you know, how am I going to keep this theater open? And our survival is, how am I going to stay alive? So I, and uh, for everything that I say, I'm also going to own up to the fact that I sit in a position of privilege. I um, have had, I have benefited from light skin privilege my entire life. And I am outspoken because I know that if anybody ever didn't like what I say, I could say, fine, I quit because I have a husband who has a good job and saying, fine, I quit, doesn't, you know, is not going to affect my ability to eat or, or, or pay my rent or send my kids to school or take care of them. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit up here and say that I don't understand people trying to, you know, um, keep those spaces open and, and, and uh, keep their, keep their workers staffed because their workers' livelihood, their staff's livelihood depends on that. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the statements that have come out in really just two, three days since those theater statements, uh, Griffin Matthews uh, video, but so many others um, that have just been coming out and getting so much play and, and so many forwards and shares just in the past day or two, do you, do you think theaters will be receptive to them? I, I I don't know. I, I can't tell you. I, I mean, I can, I can tell you that I, I, I can only speak for myself when I say that I live in a state of distrust. That has been, you know, 
a, a constant in my career in most things I have done outside of the fire this time. Fire this time, I'm good. I love it. I love a res. I have, if I didn't have the fire this time, if I didn't have a res, if I didn't have Bridget NYC, for me at least, I don't know what, what I what I'd be doing in the in terms of you know my my feed orc. Um I'm not uh I have let me put it to you this way. I have learned to um to not trust what they say they're gonna do. I have learned to figure out a path around it to get to where I need to get to. Mm-hmm. I have, you know, settled myself with a certain level of discomfort in order to make steps forward. Which is a terrible agreement to have to make just to enter the meeting room. Yeah. So you and I have been friends for a long time already. We met in graduate school. And when you started the Fire This Time Festival, and uh, I didn't come to the first year, but I remember when I, I first attended the festival and it was opening night, so the energy is always really big. It was honestly revelatory for me because there were a few white people in the room, but it was mostly people of color. And it was people who were so excited to be there, theater lovers. Everyone was a little dressed up. Like before the performance even began, there was just this energy going around. In between scenes, there was energy. and. It was just like, I don't know if you hadn't invited me because we were already friends, if I would have said like, oh, I want to buy a ticket to that. Because I might have been intrigued by the the writers and what it would involve, because I already liked many Black writers and I was already reading them and seeing their work. But I don't know if I would have felt a little bit intimidated by an all-Black festival. And I feel thankful to you that you invited me. And then when I attended, it was like, why would I have been intimidated? And I just wanted to say that I had had a feeling about uh, various Black festivals or Black theaters as possibly being a space where it feels good if the audience all gets each other. It's something I actually sometimes still wonder about with uh, like maybe bars in my neighborhood of Crown Heights. If, uh, if I want to come to the bar, um, there's one that it's not operating now, but a few months ago, I really wanted to go, but I, I thought if I go, would I disturb the, the vibe and the environment there? And it's something that I wanted to do in a sensitive way. I wanted to not be somebody who overstepped. And so my husband, David, and I said, we want to check out that bar. We actually want to go to it. So what if we go on a really mellow night, like a Wednesday? And we went, and it was not that crowded. And we chatted with the bartender and had a really nice time. And we said, okay, that was great. Let's go back on Saturday night. Mm. And I think that there's that kind of uh, feeling of easing in 
just like how you said that if Eras produces something, it feels genuine. I have felt as someone who observes and critiques theater and wants to be part of it and wants to observe it and, and wants to um, gain insights on it and then share it with an audience. I also want to be a sensitive audience member. And I wonder, I still wonder this, not with the fire this time, because that feels like something that's really comfortable. But sometimes I do wonder with new spaces, should I be, should I ease my way in? Or is that, is that silly? Like, what do you think about that? No, I don't think it's, I don't think it's silly. Because I think that I, I wish that more people had your, your, your level of awareness that um, you are stepping into someone else's house, you know? And I mean, it's like, it, it's like this, you know, it's like if you invited somebody over to your house and, and like you, you really, you want them to be there. Like, you know, you, I mean, cause you invited them and like you, you know, you're so excited to welcome them. And then they come in and they just start doing dumb stuff, like standing in your sofa <laughs> or like, you know, de, you know, demanding, demanding things and, and not saying, and not, if the first thing that comes out of their mouth isn't, thank you so much for coming. Like, should I take my shoes off? It's, it, it's, 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 a, it's about that awareness and that consciousness because it's the same thing coming in with awareness, you know, coming in with the, the, like a, a, a genuine wish to to be a part of the family and be a part of the community. And how do you do that? It's like, you know, check, check the temperature of the room, like do all of the, be self-aware, which is what you're telling me that like you and David do. And, and that's all that has to happen. I keep thinking about various productions that I've seen, uh, some on Broadway and some at theaters around the city where the production seemed great. It got good press. I really enjoyed it. It gave me new insight into the writer. Maybe I read more of the writer stuff after that. Some of them have been on this podcast. And I wonder, have all of those experiences for them, whether they're an actor or playwright, have they all been compromised in some way? If I had to bet, and honest, and I, and and I and I would hope that I would lose the bet, but mm -hmm. if I had to bet, I would win, to say that yes, across the board. Mm -hmm. Do you see this as something that audience members can can really voice? Do you like? How can, how can theater lovers be part of this and really propel this? Can they, would it help for them to share those stories on their feeds? Would it help for them to contact the theaters? Yeah, I would. I, I mean, if, if you were an audience member and you wanted to make a difference, you know, because when we talk about like holding space right now, you know, so many of our, um, uh, you know, black theater artists or, you know, those who identify as of color or those who identify as LGBTQ or differently able body, like, you know, whatever it is, like, you know, that the, I am conscious of that that space right now is being held for them to, because it takes the courage to tell those stories. Hmm. 
And, you know, we talk about, you know, we were just talking about awareness. And I think that the awareness that right now they need to say those things. Audience members need to, you know, let them say it and go directly to the theater, you know, and say, hey, you know what? Actually, there was this time that I was at this talk back and, you know, an angry white woman got up and got in the faces of black people. That was unacceptable. You've been at work on your own writing, and you have a play, The Faith Healer, which is inspired by uh, medical professionals in your own family and healers in your family. And if you can just envision a seamless, beautiful way for that play to find a production, what would that look like? Um, you know, you, you mean the path or the actual production? Because I, guess... I mean, ask me about the path right right now. <laughs> <laughs> I might have only I can answer that with maybe just like two words, but <laughs> um, whichever one you like. So then I'll talk about the production because you know because um, and. I, you know, when I did um, the stretch of Montpelier, which is the is my first piece in the installment, and I did that at the um, in the Planet Connections Theater Festivity, and uh, it was kind of like done in like a semicircle. It was like a half round, and um, I remember that like there were no um, the air conditioners weren't working properly or something like that in the lobby. So we kind of just said like, oh, we'll go with it. You know, give people the real Louisiana experience. Mm-hmm. And like, and I went to Chinatown and bought as many fans as I could, yeah, as I could buy, you know, and um, and really just let people immerse themselves in my world, in my experience. Um, that is the kind of production I dream of, and I and I think to myself even I'm just like oh man it's like you know it's like how like like how immersive can we get how much using the culture can I get into one night like <laughs> oh when you walk into the lobby you walk into a fado dough you know and it's like you just dance your way into the thing and then you take a beignet or, I'm like, <laughs> you know I mean because that's how we do it's like you know everything is a celebration for you know artists you know black artists we we just want to have a good time. We just want to share this that makes us alive, that we celebrate, that we love. We want to share that with more people because it makes us so freaking happy. Why is it so difficult? You know, I'm like, and, and, again, and, I, and I promise you, it's like these, these same people who restrict that kind of joy from happening on our stage are probably the same people who brag about going to Jazz Fest and going to Mardi Gras, you know, and how awesome it felt to do that and to be there. Okay, cool. Felt awesome. Do more of that. Mm -hmm. I hope that production happens. It sounds amazing. Oh, it will. <laughs> if, if if it's in my backyard, nail or if it's gonna <laughs> it's gonna happen, because again, it, you know, it's like at at the end of the day, like if 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 it's not something that's making you laugh or or making you or I'm finding some joy, then like to, then it's like it's not worth it. 
Kelly, I want to thank you for your time and for your wisdom, uh, but mostly for your friendship. It means everything to me. Aww. Uh, likewise, Mike. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow Places Everyone on Twitter. Podcast production and original music by Cody Crabb. Artwork by Jennifer Klockner. See you next time.